Psalm 126, 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Geb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Then who, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. As for the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Thank you. Well, I'm honestly really comforted um, by this psalm, especially in a week like this where we see so much tragedy. Because the psalmist here, he, he looks back on the past, of God's faithfulness in the past, on his um, present faithfulness, and then he looks forward to the future. This psalm is actually, um, consists of three parts. I think it's up there on the screen. Verse 1 through 3, um, we see first the psalmist exhorts the faithful who had returned from captivity to gratitude and highly extols the grace displayed in their deliverance to show them beyond all doubt that they were brought back to their own country by the hand of God and not by fortuitous conjuncture or of circumstances or by the favor of men. And then in verse 4, in the second part, a prayer is added. God would perfect his own work, which he had begun, in bringing back the rest of the captives. In verse 5 and 6, finally... Although there was no immediate prospect of full restoration, yet he eases the feelings of weariness, which delay might bring about and assures them, though at present the seed was watered with tears, the harvest would be joyous. So we're going to go ahead and jump right in. Verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. I actually like the NASB on this because it says, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. And I think it's really important that we realize that this was written upon the return of the Babylonian captivity. Because if we consider their captivity, why God ordained it, and their return, God's faithfulness to his word, it'll help us understand why the psalmist expresses so much joy. To get a, a background on this, we have to start with the Mosaic Covenant um, to understand why they were sent to captivity in the first place. Deuteronomy 28 spells out, if you were to turn there, or I'm not going to read it because there's 64 verses in that chapter, but it, it spells out blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And one of those cursings for the disobedience was exile. It would be that um, foreigners from different lands would come um, and a king would conquer them, and they would take them away, and Israel would lose. And this is what the wonderful prophet Jeremiah got to prophesy about. If you're familiar, Jeremiah warns Israel of their spiritual adultery. He exhorts them to repent, and then he, um, because of their dis- uh, disobedience, he prophesies in t- Jeremiah 25:11 this, "'The whole land shall become a ruined and a waste.'" And the nation shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. This finds its, ulti- this finds its fulfillment in Second Kings chapter 25 when the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, um, conquers and overthrows Israel by the hand of the Chaldeans. They are taken into captivity. Also prophesied by Jeremiah in 25.12, 
was their deliverance. He said, then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and the nations, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And again in 29.10 says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. I bring this all to light because it shows us of God's faithfulness. It shows him that he was faithful and and delivering on his his curses towards Israel, and he was also faithful on his covenant promise of delivering Israel. And it reminds us today that he is faithful to his promises towards us, that which we have in Christ. Verse 1 again, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. I kind of want you guys to reflect, what is it to dream? I mean, I know when I dream, it's, it's always of perfection. And I'll be honest, I daydream. A lot of my daydreams consist of what my life's going to be like in 37 years. You know, ministry, senior, you know, after seminary, ministry, it's, it's great. You know, it's, it's always perfect. Um, I don't really dream at night. I'm not one that remembers my dreams, so I don't have too many bad dreams. So all my daydreams are always good. It's always what I want them to be. So that's what I think about when I, when I, I read verse 1. By the verb dream, which expresses the astonishing character of the event, the psalmist teaches us that there is no room left for ingratitude. And honestly, as often as God works by ordinary means, men through our sinful nature, we, we can exercise this ingenuity in devising various causes for deliverance that is brought about in order to darken the grace of God. I think about so many skeptics in the world. When we go out and we evangelize, we, we speak of God's word of, of how it becomes coincidence or that may be good for you and true and all, but it doesn't work. You know, for me here, the return of the Jewish people from Babylon captivity, having been a miracle of such splendor, is sufficient to swallow up and confound all those thoughts. And it compels us to own that it indeed was the work of God. And I believe this is the reason why the prophet compares the deliverance to a dream. If we were to think of our own captives and vices, I would say if you were taken immediately out of all of your suffering and all of your pain, you would probably ask someone to pinch you just to make sure. It wouldn't seem like reality. It would seem like a false reality. But this is the reality that Israel felt upon Cyrus' decree for them to return to their home, to rebuild. And honestly, brothers and sisters, this is the reality we have when we understand what Jesus did for us on the cross. When we truly understand that in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that he is working on our behalf, that he has fulfilled all of God's promises, we can then stand in a reality that honestly I, I, I have a hard time with. Uh, I can be honest to say if you were to tell me that I am redeemed, that my wretched sins were placed on Christ and he was my atonement, that judicially I am justified, I'm not guilty, I'm freely forgiven by God's grace, it's a hard reality sometimes when I wake up. It's, 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 it's like a false reality. Is this true? It, it seems like a dream. 
But honestly, what joy fills my heart when I look to Christ for my soul's restoration. Verses two and three, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. The design of the psalmist here is not obscure. He would have the people so rejoice on the account of their return as not to bury God's grace. He therefore describes no ordinary rejoicing, but so fills our minds, their minds, with constrain their minds as to constrain them back to break forth with extravagance, gesture, and extravagance of gesture and voice. It says there that their mouth was filled with laughter and their tongues with shouts of joy. Now I believe this mouth is the same as, as when you would see when the Pharisees came to Jesus upon the disciples eating with unclean hands. And Jesus tells them that first clean the inside um, and then the out because it's our heart that he speaks of. This is a shout from the heart. This is our, our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. This is something that comes from within. This isn't an ordinary false praise. But at the same time, he expresses that there is a good ground for joy in which, he became, in which it became the children of God to enjoy on, a, on their account to the return of their own land. If you think about this, this was a period of nothing more than just a wretched time. Um, they were dispossessed of their inheritance of, God, of God's land, of all that he promised them, actually. So for them, there would be nothing more than them to be restored uh, uh, back to God's promises, for them to come back into God's care, into, their, into the land that God promised them. Um, the restoration to their own country, having been therefore proof of their renewed adoption by God, it is not surprising to find the psalm, psalmist here asserting, asserting such joy, such laughter, such praise upon their tongue, such exaltation of God. But I, speaking of us today with similar joy, today when we gather, do we have the same? I mean, we gather as, as the church, we gather as God's saints. Do we feel the same way? Are our tongues filled with joy? Are we exalting God in praise? But at the same time, are we saddened? Does it, it produce great grief and lamentation that the church is still dispersed? that there are unbelievers out there. There's, there's flock that God has yet gathered, that we live in a time where we're awaiting God's return. So I'm saying we should have joy that we're here today, but we should also lament. We should also go out, gather, spread the gospel, weep for those who are still lost. In verse 3, again, the psalmist proceeds farther, declaring that the miracle was even seen by the blind. Speaking of them, in verse 3, it's like an unbeliever who wanders around like the blind. They have no knowledge of God shown upon them, and yet God's power and, operation, God's power and operations 
were so conspicuous in this event that they too burst forth in acknowledgement of God's work. It says that God has done great things for his people. The psalmist is speaking for those who do not yet believe that they saw this great work of God in bringing back the captives that they too praised. I also think so much more shameful than the indifference of the Jews to be counted if they did not freely and loudly celebrate God's grace. Um, And I see this, we see this today. It, It saddens me to think of the hardness of Israel to the God of Jacob. You have a lot of people ask and say, well, don't you worship the same God? And truly we don't. Because in rejecting Jesus, Israel rejects God. And there are so many still today that do that. And it saddens me to think of this. And it's shameful for the Jews. Also, if I was to add more to this, is the form of speech that we see here, it expresses an idea that I believe is intended to be conveyed that God, that God's power and deliverance is known by the Gentiles. It's seen by the Gentiles. If I was to recount personally or even in all of your lives, I guarantee there's people that saw something change in you. For me personally, I had friends that honestly don't even know me anymore. And when they see me, they don't know me anymore. And it's just, it's God's work in my life. And I'm not talking about a physical transformation. It's just I'm a different person. And they can try to account that to whatever they want. But honestly, deep down, they know that it's the work of God because they knew who I was. And that's the same for you guys in your life. Unbelievers do know. They do see. It's not a quote I'm, 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 I guess it's not a favorite quote of mine. But, you know, you always hear preach the gospel Uh, at all times and when necessary use words now I believe we should always use words but it it does speak to the truth of our actions it does speak to them seeing God's work in our lives and then in the following verse the psalmist repeats in his own voice the words uttered by the unbeliever in the preceding verses and I would say let us at least put forth a confession corresponding to that which God has exhorted from the unbelieving Gentiles. When he adds that they were glad, there's an implied antithesis, I believe, between the fresh joy and the long-continued sorrow with which they were afflicted in their captivity. Just as it is with us, we are living in what I believe is the time of exile. It's the time between Christ's first and second coming. It's a time where we await our king, where there will be no more tears, that there will be no more sin. Or as Peter says, that we, we wait to receive the grace that has been prepared for us upon Christ's return, upon the revelation of Christ. And so this is something we should reflect on. We should also estimate which we have been brought out of. A lot of times, and I don't want to get too much into this is because it's part of my, my response or my, my application, but we should reflect on what God has done in our lives. We should reflect what God has brought us out of. As hard as it is sometimes, we need to look back. 
if I was honest with you, I can look back on my own failures, my own sins, and I can see the grace of God. How if, he would have con- if I would have continued and how he stopped me in my tracks and I'm, I'm thankful that I didn't give to vices, that I didn't continue on a path that leads to death and destruction. And by reflecting, I can remember, yes, I failed, but I can see God's grace and God's mercy. I can see God's work in my life. Verse 4, restores our fortune, O Lord. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. As I said before, the second part of this psalm contains a prayer that God would gather together the remainder of the captives. And I did forget to mention um, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, They trace their history of the Jews from their first return from the exile, 538 B.C., through the second return, which was led by Ezra himself in 458 B.C. So we see here the psalmist praying that God would continue to to restore the remainder of captives as we should continue to pray for the unbelieving world, as I said before, and I can't stress enough. One thing that if I was to go off on a little bit of a rabbit trail that I think the church needs more today is prayer. If you you look around, we do so much. Events, this, that, but prayer meetings? I think of a time when the church would ring bells and they would pray. What I I guess I mean and what I'm, I'm getting at is God uses prayer. He works through prayer. That's his means of of working, and we too should be on our knees for our fellow neighbors, for our, our brothers and sisters, for for the unbelieving world. And we see that this is what the, the psalmist is doing here: restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Geb. If you're not familiar with Negeb, this is actually um, Judah, and it's it's desert land. So, like streams in the Geb would be. Water's coming back to the dry land. Water's coming back to the desert. It would be a blessing, and that's what he's praying for. Restore our fortunes. Restore our captivity. Restore our people like the streams in the Geb. Moving on again, verse 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The carrying away of the Jews into Babylon was to them a seed time. God, having by the prophecy of Jeremiah, encouraged them to hope for the harvest. Still, it was not without very great heaviness and anguish of heart that they were dragged in such long captivity. It was like that of a poor farmer who, already experiencing the pain of hungers, was compelled to cut himself short of his his food. and provide for the coming year. Although this is a hard and distressing case, he has moved to sow with the hope of harvest. Now, I grew up in Indiana, and I was surrounded by cornfields, wheat fields, bean fields, and I would hear stories because most of, of that, that uh, agricultural work now is, I mean, the corn goes off and it goes for grain. Um, beans, you know, you get the same thing, and, and the wheat. So it's not like a lot of the farmers are, are providing for themselves with it. But I've heard stories of farmers who, I mean, that's their livelihood. They put that seed in the ground with the hope 
that rain's going to come, that God is going to provide for them and their family. And this, this is Israel. This is what's happening right here in this text. This is what was happening during the captivity of Babylon. The Jews then, when led into captivity, were doubtless no less sorrowful than the farmer. In this time of scarcity, they too had to cast the precious seed into the ground. But afterwards, a joyful harvest followed. When they were delivered, the Lord restored to them gladness, like that which is experienced in the most abundant increase. I, however, also here would say that this psalmist exhorts the faithful to patience in reference to the future. The full time of the harvest not yet having arrived, and therefore the psalmist, not without excuse, exhorts them strenuously to labor and to, per- and to persevere in the midst of continual dif- difficulties without fainting until they found themselves placed in more favorable circumstances. I mentioned earlier in Ezra and Nehemiah, there was, there was two groups. There was of return. There was those who, who came at first and then there was a second. And I, and I wonder why they all didn't come at first. Were they too caught up in their sin, in the mud to leave, to want to leave? I wonder, but I love how the psalmist exhorts those who are there to continue to pray for them, to pray for their return. And I also believe that this doctrine extends still farther. Our life is, in other parts of Scripture, compared to the seed time, and has often happened that we must too sow in tears. We should raise our minds to the hope of the harvest. And that's what we should do today. That's, that's as, I, as I say again, as the church living in exile, we should be sowing seeds. We should be watering those seeds with tears, with prayers. We should also remember that the Jews who were carried captive into Babylon did not sow. For as many of them who hardened themselves against God and the prophets, they had despised all threatening and all hope of returning. Those in whom was such despair consumed in their miseries, they were sustained by the promises of God. It was by God's faithfulness. They did cherish in their hearts the hope of the harvest. And in order then that joy may succeed our present sorrow, we too should let our minds contemplate of the issues which God has promised. We should look back on the covenants. We should look back on God's promises. We should go to God's word. I know my last message, that was my biggest thing, but we should be immersed in scripture. But we too shall experience that of all true believers. Eventually, God will wipe away the tears from our eyes and he will diffuse inconceivable joy into our hearts. He will fill the entire faculty of our bodies. But more importantly, how do we respond today? How does this apply to us as the church for we may not see a captivity of that like Babylon. I mean, we have our, our pleasures in life. We, we aren't completely slaves as they were. But we should do the same thing. We should re- first start by recounting the faithfulness of God. First in Scripture and then our own life. 
Psalm 88, yeah, Psalm 88 meditates at length on the Lord's redemptive covenant choice of David and his household to draw strength and inspiration. So the psalmist in Psalm 88, the household of David, looks back on God's promises to their household that he would fulfill them, that gave them strength and inspiration. Or we could go to Nehemiah chapter 9. And if you're familiar with this, this is upon this return of this captivity. And this is after they're beginning to rebuild. And they start to do a prayer of confession. And after they confess, they start praying and recounting what God has done. You know, they, they look and they, they, they look to God who is, who is the creator of all of them, the creator of heaven. He is the host of heaven says, you are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of the year of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. He goes on to talk about uh, um, Moses and how he raised up Moses. And it talks about their, their slavery and how their redemption from the Egyptians. It talks about the parting of the Red Sea. He continues, Nehemiah continues to work up to this point where God because of their disobedience, has led them into captivity. But what he's doing here is he's, he's, he's recounting the faithfulness of God. He's recounting God's redemption, God's honest, just punishment for their sins and their redemption that they have at this time in, in Nehemiah this, upon this, this uh, restoration, upon their return from the captivity of Babylon. And I would say to you, if God has done this on their behalf, he, he too sure will do this for you. We may summarize, and I've heard it said like this, and I don't have who exactly whose quote this was, but it said, if God has redeemed us in Christ, then he will also give us all things necessary. This makes me think of Romans 8, uh, 32 and, or 31 and 32. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give all things? We can look back. We can look back on, on this psalmist and his prayer in this psalm. We could look back to Nehemiah's prayer. We can look back all the way to creation and see God's faithfulness in bringing about his plan and his sovereignty. And then we can look about it and we can, we can reflect in our own lives. You could go to, to church history. You can see God working in the early church and the apostolic fathers to defend against heresies. That's where you get when we went through the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasians' Creed. These were written to, def to defend Scripture. They were written to, to put away heresies. And you can continue on. You can go to the Protestant Reformation and you can see Martin Luther knelling his 93 what seven thesis on the door at Wittenberg he did this to stand up for the justification by grace alone through faith alone to show that we don't have to work for our salvation to show that repentance should be that the daily life of a believer and I can think about in our present day I can look back on uh, an organization called the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals who, who got together uh, in Chicago and it's the Chicago Declaration of Faith and it defends the inerrancy of scripture 
Because as you see today, churches all over are leaving God's word. Homosexuality is okay. You can be a pastor. It's not. It's not that, that we hate the people, but the sin. God hates the sin. And we've done this in other things. It's not just that. There's so much how we have turned away from God's word. And I think about those faithful men who signed that declaration that day to, to defend that this isn't Aaron, that there's no errors, that from beginning to end, it's God's word. And then if I was to say personally, I can look back on what God has done in my life just like you can look back on what God has done in yours. We've all sinned. We've all fell short of the glory of God. But as I said earlier, I can look back and I can see in those painful moments of the things that I now despise, God's grace. I can see that he kept me from going down a path that would have led to hell. Secondly, I would say we should sow good seed. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And if we were to think about Galatians 6, 7, and 8, it says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It's just a question. Are you sowing? Are you sowing seeds? And I'm not even just saying going out and preaching the gospel, but in your own life. Something that I've recently tried to add into my own life is, is it's a Latin term, quorum Deo, and it means in the presence of God. And if any of you are familiar with Ligonier Ministries on all their devotions, that's how they end it. You know, like they, they give the devotion and how should we respond? But I want to take that even farther in my own life to just, God is in every part of my life. Am I living my life like I am in the appearance of God? Will I look back one day and be ashamed that what I thought I was doing in secret, God was there, that I was doing it in his presence, in his face? So am I sowing good seeds in my life? Am I sowing good seeds in in my daily devotion with him and how I treat my wife and how I raise my son and how I all of my dealings with you, but not just in the big things, the small things. You know, I have a favorite quote, but, and I, once again, I don't know who said it, but character is what a man is in the dark. That's what true character is. If you want to know a man, that's what he is in the dark is who he truly is. And that's convicting to me because I know I'm not alone. So we should sow good seeds. And then we should also do this once again, and I'm going to keep pushing this this in. There's so many people that are lost and dying in this world that we encounter every day. And I know it can be scary. I know it can seem to be hard. But honestly, we're here to tell them about Jesus, the gospel, the good news. We're here to make disciples. That's our job as, as, as citizens of the kingdom. And I don't want to look back and realize that I sowed sparingly and I reaped sparingly when I could have sowed bountifully and reaped bountifully. And then lastly, I think we always should look to Christ for he is the source of all of our life. Our hope is in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and his return. 
we should constantly reflect upon the cross. We should preach the gospel to ourselves daily. And I said this because too many times we can fall into doubt. We can fall into deep introspection upon ourselves because we're not looking to Christ. We can forget what God has done for us in him. Something that helped me greatly is that I I can realize that I am holy in Christ. I've been set apart and I'm being made holy. So if this is what I am and if this is what God's word, I should just be what I already am. I shouldn't struggle to work and try to pick at everything. I should just look to Christ, realize that I'm justified in him and then walk in that newness. And then I'll end with this quote by J. Gresham Machen. And it's one of my favorite ones in the world because he says, thank God for the act of obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And that's the truth. If it wasn't for how Christ fulfilled the law, if it wasn't for his death, his resurrection, him ascending to heaven to intercede for us and his coming again, we are without hope. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do just praise you for your faithfulness to your word. Lord, we thank you that you have truly delivered us from death, that you have brought us to your son. Lord, that you in him have redeemed us, that we have been justified freely of his blood. Lord, I just thank you so much for our savior. I thank you so much for he truly is our hope. Lord, I would also ask that you would continue to just work in everybody's life in this room that you would continue to sow seeds in in their heart, that they would go out and they would live for you day by day. And I pray that they would experience your love, your grace, and your mercy. Lord, and I would pray that they, they realize how desolate they are if they do not have you. Lord, but we do thank you that you fill us. We thank you that you are there for us and we love you. And Lord, I thank you for your word today. I thank you that we can reflect upon what you have done, what you're doing now, and what you're going to continue to do. And it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.